problem is that because the fundraisers are so kind of out of touch with this younger, and when I say younger, I mean like younger than 70, but this younger sort of demographic or people who are not writing checks. Most people I know, most millennials specifically, I have three of them at home. They don't do checks. And so when you say, send me a check, it's like, what are you talking about? So they're so completely out of touch that it's really, it's a huge problem. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders. Rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Valley is bringing you the most advanced education in the world. If you are a member of Valley, know that you're going to get access to all of this for less than $2 a day. See, most schools like Harvard charge thousands of dollars for a college education, and we think this is rubbish. We know that in five years from now, you will be better equipped when you get to study from the likes of the incredible teachers that we bring on the Valley platform with the curriculum design, the amazing storytelling, and the technology that really enables you to truly transform. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman to learn more on how to become a member of Valley. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. If this is your first time tuning in, make sure to subscribe to our podcast as we bring back new episodes every single week, twice a week, with amazing guests that bring us incredible insights on really turning you into a superhuman in the workplace. And now for today, we're going to dive into a world that I'm so curious about because we might only have visions and ideas, or maybe some stories through movies and media that have told us about this world of philanthropy. We're talking about these giant galas and donors and people having conversation and these massive amounts of funds being transferred. Yet we're going to have somebody who's had a firsthand experience jumping into that world and really highlighting all of the dysfunctions and the opportunity that a transformation in this world of philanthropy can really bring. If you've ever wanted to push forward a cause as an enterprise, a nonprofit enterprise yourself, you'll get an idea of what are the potentials that lie when you start attracting a various type of donors. And we'll really look at what this world is about and what we can do so that we can push the causes we care about to really make the impact we want to see in the world. Lisa Greer has just written the book, The Philanthropy Revolution, and it's an insider's guide to fundraising in the new era. She's actually worked in many industries, particularly around digital media and the entertainment business. She's been around the online and divisions for NBC, Universal Studios, Spencer Gifts, and launching Pioneer Ventures into web casting for music as well. She runs the Tandem Care Planning Company, which is all about finding in-home quality care for those who need that in your family members. But her big shift has now been in the world of philanthropy. We're going to dive into this world and she's going to give us the guide that we need while we are thinking about it as well. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting. Now, I wanted to kind of start with your own story because you've been an entrepreneur, a businesswoman. You've been in the online marketing space. You've created this company for caretaking. What was this trigger that made you shift into really wanting to be active in fundraising yourself? Really, it was because we were fortunate enough to have the opportunity. So for years and years, I would give when I could, but we were mostly... I didn't grow up wealthy. And so we gave where we could, we would give more time than money because the money just wasn't there. And if there was some extra money, then we would give it certainly to a school or to whatever, something like that. I remember being about 12 years old and giving to CARE because it was an international organization helping people. And I think it was, I think it was Global South. 
And then all of a sudden, about 10 years ago, after working, 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 we found ourselves wealthy, basically, almost overnight. And the first thing we said is, oh my gosh, we can now actually give something. And we started on this path to be philanthropists and become philanthropists without really having any training. And so we came to it not as people who had been doing this their whole lives. It was like going to an alien land or something like that. And we learned along the way. And what we learned is when we put our business hats on and our background, we applied our background to it, we sort of said, where did we just land? This place is really strange. And so the book is really about that journey. Interesting. Now, for me listening to this, I'm like, wow, okay, so you have this wealth and you're obviously coming from an altruistic place. You want to be able to give. And you're saying that you didn't have any training for how to give. Some people might be listening to this being like, what do you mean you need training on how to give? What were these things that you realized once you started with an intention of wanting to give? Like there were roadblocks? Like what happened? Well, this is the sort of crazy part. This is how the book starts. And really, some people think that this is made up, but it happened just like it says in the book which is that my husband and I sat down and we said, this company was about to go public. His company, I was selling my company. We're serial entrepreneurs. And it looked like we were going to become extremely wealthy within a few weeks of that time. And so I said, let's figure out one big donation we each want to make and something that we both think is that we're passionate about. We're passionate about a lot of the same things, but let's each pick one. So he's had Crohn's disease, like an IBD kind of thing, for years and years and years, since he was about 11, 12 years old. And he said, I want to make sure that nobody else has to go through what I've been going through since I've been a kid ever again. So I'd like to find out if there's a genetic piece to it and if somehow that can be turned off or it can somehow be treated in a way that nobody will have to go through what I, my friends I met from the hospital went through, and which was great. And he says, so I want to find out who's doing the most cutting edge research in that. I said, great. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm the new president of our synagogue. And I was the incoming president. And they were finishing up what's called a capital campaign, which is a campaign to redo a building or something very major. Usually it's a building. And they were restoring our sanctuary and had been working on it for several years. And I knew that they needed a million dollars to finish it. And we'd already started the work, but we had to get this extra million dollars to finish the whole thing. And so I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give the million dollars there. And then we're going to go find out where the best hospital is to do your work. So we started with, we were going to go look all over the country. And I said, let's look in our backyard first, where my husband had had most of his surgeries, which is Cedar sinai Hospital here in Los Angeles. And we decided, actually, I was going to go there, not knowing anyone other than his doctors, and find out if they were doing any cutting edge research on the genetics of this irritable bowel syndrome kind of thing. And we found out that they were, but it took a very long time. And the upshot of both of these is that when we told Cedar sinai we wanted to do this and finally met with sort of the right person, but a junior person, they wouldn't give us the senior people because they didn't know who we were because we weren't people who'd been giving for our whole lives. So they didn't know who we were. They could have checked online to find out that the money was real and that the company was real, but they didn't do that. Or if they did, they didn't really think it was important. And so it took us seven months for them to agree to accept a couple million dollars from us. It took me on the phone over and over and over and over again, emails, all sorts of stuff. Hello, please stop ignoring me. I would like to give you this money. And literally it was like that. And then for the synagogue, I called the senior person at the synagogue who was a good friend and I was working with. And I said, I just wanted to let you know, we've just had this discussion and we've decided that we would like to finish this capital campaign for you and give you the final million dollars. And the answer I got was, well, I don't know what to say. 
And I thought, that's a strange reaction. So remember, we haven't done this ever before. I just keep thinking about that meme we see online, which is like the shut up and take my money. Yeah, it was exactly like that. And so I said, we're going to give you the final million dollars to close the capital campaign. And she said, I don't know what to say. I thought that was so not what I expected. So I said, well, I guess you could just say thank you. And she said, well, I can't really do this because we didn't make an ask. And I thought, what planet am I on? This is crazy. And so I hung up the phone and completely bowled over and the phone rang again. And this woman was one of the leading feminists and still is thought of as one of the leading feminists in the Jewish world. And the phone rang and she said, can I talk to your husband? And I thought, what? What's going on here? And of course, she said to him, you know, is Lisa crazy or whatever? And he was like 10 feet from me. And we both thought that was so offensive and so awful. And that was our really introduction, like trial by fire, I guess, in philanthropy. And I think most people might have said, screw it. I'm not going to continue doing this. This is not what I expected. If I'm going to give somebody money. They should be grateful and say thank you. And it shouldn't be like this. And Unfortunately, it is like that. And so we found not as those were our big major donations. Our donations since then have not been as high, but there's been a lot of them. And we found that the way that we treated was not unusual. And that was just very strange to us. That's interesting because it seems to me like the fundraising part is what most nonprofit organizations are really wanting to expand. And what you're telling me is that these organizations are creating roadblocks for it to happen. Like, how did it get this way? Like, what's going on? You know, it's very strange because then you've got, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, who gave money to Harvard and a number of other universities, and they didn't even, they didn't even really check, even though some of them had like a kind of a sense that maybe that was not being done for the right reasons and where the money come from. And there's other examples like that. But because he'd been doing it for a long time and he was a big name, it seems like they just didn't worry about it. And But this idea of it being this club that if you're anybody who hasn't been doing it forever, who's not a known philanthropist, you're not welcome, is ludicrous. And at the same time, those same people are saying, oh my gosh, we've got to find new people. And really what it boils down to is that they've been doing it the same way for years and years. And a lot of these, and really we've traced this back. There's a wonderful woman in the UK who actually did research on this and traced it back to about the 1910s, 1920s, where a lot of these rules were created that you have to do and ask and all that kind of stuff. And it really hasn't changed. And so what we've got now are really what I call a lot of older white men who are, for the most part, most of the institutions that I'm in contact with really have been paying the bulk of the money that their revenue has come from this very small group of people who are also on their board, who also make decisions, who have been doing it forever. Maybe their parents did the same thing. And what's happening is they're now in their like 70s, 80s or beyond. And because there's so few of them in control of so much money for so many thousands or tens of thousands of organizations, I'm very worried that if, you know, it's going to take what two of them are going to pass away or four of them, and all of a sudden the bottom falls out of philanthropy and all of these organizations say, what just happened? There's no money anymore. And if you're wondering how can that happen, these like 10 guys or 20 guys with that many institutions, it's because there's a lot of institutions that are nonprofits like a United Way or like other organizations like that, that then pass on money to other nonprofits. So a single nonprofit could be around the world could be funding, Oxfam, whatever. It could be tens of thousands or 100,000 nonprofits. But if that money's all coming in the pipeline at the top from a few of these guys, then there's a really bad future ahead. And it's really, really unfortunate. 
And when I talked to the fundraisers and said, don't you see that? They said, yes, we do. But if we have to work with younger people, they want things differently. They don't want to give us a check and say, see you later. They want to know where the money's going. And they would like to know, really, what are we doing? And a variety of different questions. But if we do that, we've got to learn this whole new language. We've got to learn that they really aren't into the galas and the three-hour lunches and the, all of the little stuff and the many phone calls and what it takes. They have a different language and a different way of being. And really, phone calls aren't going to make it. And sending them snail mail is crazy. And these big, giant, written annual reports that you use as a doorstop. So, But they've said to me and to other people... It's just much easier to ask those older guys for a little bit more money than it is to, and we realize it's dangerous, but if we just ask those guys for a little more money every year, it's much easier than learning this new language and the new way to be with people who are younger. That is interesting. Actually, it just shows that this whole area of philanthropy is having kind of the similar disruption that pretty much every industry is having where you see you know, a generation that's coming in, even if you think of just general employment, like employers are thinking, what's wrong with these millennials? They're talking about how does this work align to my passion? They're asking questions about why they should invest in the company as well. And when people were just not expecting that, and now you have these innovative companies that embrace the new culture that are able to attract top talent, Philanthropy sounds to be like it's going through a similar thing where there's a new generation of people. And by God, it's like today, with technology that has risen, you have a huge amount of people that are have disposable income, available income, and high amounts of wealth more than ever. I mean, the upper class has kept a lot of the wealth, especially in 2020. Even a lot of new millionaires are coming up. But I don't think there's any instruction manuals on how these companies can attract these people because, like you said, the generation has so many more demands. And so, like, even if we think about the Uber generation, we can't just be like, oh, let's pick up the phone and call a cab. We want to be able to see how long it's going to be away. We want to be able to track where it's at and all these things that technology has made us more accustomed for this level of transparency. And so what are you seeing for the philanthropic institutions? Like, are there a new breed of them coming out and how are they doing things differently? So there are some, and I love to meet their people and to talk to them, and they're just amazing. But it's hard because the big institutions are still there controlling a lot of the money and a lot of the work. But I do see it shifting. And I think in the next eight to 10 years, also based on the ages of these sort of the 10 guys at every organization, it's going to change. And I just hope that it changes for the better, where in the next few years, and this is why I wrote my book, in the next few years, people will look at my book and other resources and say, okay, here's a little bit of a roadmap of how to change and how to talk to these people. Because the way that they talk to people now is really, and the way I was spoken to by once people started approaching me for money, it was really condescending and insulting and strange and off-putting and made me want to run from the room as opposed to give them money. Interesting. Now, when you look at the whole world in philanthropy, like I just remember this TED talk, and I know we spoke about this before we hit record here, where a lot of people, when they want to give money, they're so obsessed with how much of the money I'm giving is directly impacting the cause that I'm supporting. Is this a good trend in philanthropy versus what do you think are some of these misconceptions that people typically have when it comes to giving money? So first of all, it was Dan Pallotta who wrote that TED Talk, and I strongly recommend that everybody listen to it, not wrote or performed it. It's probably about 11, 12 years ago, but it's still valid. And it, for a long time, the idea was, well, you know, how do I choose? How do I know that the philanthropy is a good place to give to? How do I know that this is a good nonprofit and that they're operating correctly and they're not buying their own airplanes with my money? And so 
unfortunately, it became a thing to say, I want as little of your money as possible, as little of the money that your revenue, Mr. Nonprofit, I want as little of it as possible to go to your staff and go to operational costs. And basically, you're starving the organization. And you know it doesn't make any sense because what happens in the organization is constantly trying to figure out well, how do we get really people who are really passionate about this, but they need to make a living and we want to pay them a living wage? How can we do that when our donors are saying, don't give the money? So there's some interesting statistics. About 80% of fundraisers, evidently, they just did some research, about 80% of fundraisers, professional fundraisers, are highly uncomfortable about asking for money for operational and administrative costs, which is crazy. So that's their job. They should be doing that, but they're just afraid to do it. They're afraid they're going to be beaten up by the donor, I guess. And really, most donors, a lot of them come from business, and we wouldn't think of putting our money into investment where there aren't, if you think about a for-profit investment, one of the big questions you ask when you're getting funding for a company is, tell me about your staff and are they getting paid a decent wage so they're going to stay with the company and that you train them and they're going to be loyal and they're going to be part of this. If somebody said, oh, well, I got all my staff from Kmart or whatever it is, and yet you want to be a $30 million or more nonprofit, it would be ludicrous. But for some reason in fundraising, that hasn't changed. One of the other things I wanted to point out is that in terms of the millennials and young people, which we talked about, right now there's 618,000 millennial millionaires in the United States, 618,000, which is the same number as the total number of millionaires in the U.S., in 1980 and 81. So that's how many there are who are actual millennial millionaires. And when I go to these organizations and I say, how many of those millennial millionaires do you have on your board? The answer is always zero. That's really, really interesting. And so it sounds like we need to close the gap here. Now, I was going to ask, so for me, you know, I'm, I think I'm a millennial. I mean, born in 88, I think that makes me a millennial. Yes. And, you know, when I think of the whole world of philanthropy, matter of fact, I'm kind of pushed away by it, but I'm more inspired by these movements such as like conscious capitalism and B Corps. Now, how does that fit into the model of philanthropy? And is that a trend that's completely different from what philanthropy demands? There are different kinds of movements. And actually, one of the founders or two of the founders of B Corps are extremely good friends of ours. And so I know a fair amount about them. And the step kind of below it is a public benefit corporation, which is really cool. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with that, it's an actual official legal way of saying with a company, you are not only responsible to your shareholders, your stockholders, you're also responsible to, to the world and you're responsible to do good things. Because in the past, the way that it's worked is that if you're not a B Corp, really you are responsible to the shareholders, number one, and the rest of it is, is far less important. So that's a wonderful thing. That's really kind of in between the more in this corporate social responsibility area or kind of in between this philanthropy and investing. But I usually think of philanthropy and giving as an investment. I think it is an investment into that company. And I like that organization. And I like to call it that. Some fundraisers think that's a little crazy. They think that it's more like we just want to get your money and run. But it is. You'd like to have an ongoing relationship with this organization if you've checked them out and you think they're great and you have some real passion for whatever their cause is and their mission, then you want to keep donating to them. But the problem is that because the fundraisers are so kind of out of touch with this younger, and when I say younger, I mean like younger than 70, but this younger sort of demographic or people who are not writing checks. It's funny to keep talking about checks. And most people I know, most millennials specifically, I have three of them at home. They don't do checks. And so when you say, send me a check, it's like, what are you talking about? So they're so completely out of touch that it's, it's a huge problem. And I'm hoping that we can change that so that it will actually be better. I mean, even the language, I think millennials would be more like, okay, can you send the, what's your Bitcoin address? <laughs> 
and like these are just ways to like update on the times. Now, I was going to say if we switch our hats and if I'm like I'm running a nonprofit organization, maybe I'm looking to do some fundraising, what are some fundamentals that I should be aware of so that I can attract this new generation of donors? And you started opening up the the perception here that yes, they do exist, but there probably is a very different way to reach them and to get them excited about donating the cause. So, what should be some of the ground rules I should know about if I want to start my own philanthropy initiative? Great question. So the very first thing that I tell everybody is you need to realize that donors are people too. You go into these like supermarket magazines and they say, hey, they put on their pants, they're people too. The celebrities are. Guess what? Donors are people too. Donors are everybody. Most everybody I know has donated something at some point. I don't care how much money they have. Everybody has, you know, most kind people have donated money. There's all sorts of research that shows that it actually gives you better quality of life and creates happiness, gratitude by actually giving. And that's a wonderful thing. So it's the first thing I'm saying is we're all donors. So A, I say, assume that donors are not aliens. And then in fact, when you are figuring out what you want to say to a donor, put yourself in the donor's place. Maybe do a role-playing kind of thing with somebody else. And then people will say to me, but I'm not a donor. It's like, no, your impression of a donor is somebody who's not very nice and really, really wealthy. And that's a very, very small percentage of who the donors are. So really put yourself in my place. Would you want someone to say to you, and let's say the person you're talking to is whatever, 30, 35 years old, or even me. And somebody would say, you know, well, did you bring your checkbook? And I'll look at them like they're crazy. I don't carry a checkbook. I just find it unbelievable that in this day and age, people are still saying that, send me a check. And when I say, don't you have some digital version of something or can you, please don't call me on the, say, we want to have a phone call. And I'll say, can't you just send me an email with the information in a way that I can donate? And most of the nonprofit community and the fundraisers, they just, that's not the way they were taught. And so they'll just basically not know what to do. It's almost like their robot that's going to explode because they're like, no, 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 that's not the script that I was given. You can't do that. And it's crazy. So to give you a really, really good, very recent situation where I can explain this is Mackenzie Scott just gave over $4 billion. I think most people know that to a number of different organizations. And in the philanthropy news, and by the way, she didn't tell people about it. She did her own research, had her people do research, and the money just came. And back to what I said at the beginning about the person who said, well, I didn't make an ask, same thing there. And the organizations were shocked. And there were a couple of pundits and people who talk about philanthropic advising or talk about philanthropy said, well, that really wasn't the right way to do it. And I thought, what are you talking about? Of course, it was a great way to do it. Like, they really should have had a chance at the table and they should have been given notice. I, no, they should say thank you and, you know, celebrate. But that's how kind of, for lack of a better term, screwed up that industry is, that this thing happens and you can say all you want about Mackenzie Scott and all the money and people controlling the country and wealth and whatever. But she did her own research on her own. And then she said, I'm just sending you the money. And that was it. So I do think that she's a really good example of the tide turning. And that's a really big example. And with COVID, finally, five of the biggest foundations in the country, maybe the world, but certainly in the United States, got together and said about six months ago, when COVID was a few months old, and they said, you know what, we do need to help these organizations with their administrative costs. We do need to get the money faster. We do need to not put them through the ringer as much as we do. We do need to give them money for several years at a time, as opposed to a year at a time where at four months or six months, you're already looking to do your new proposal. And in one case, somebody told me that the person they had written the grant for said, the organization said, this is in like February, March. And they said, at no time, not now and never, will we accept a grant application by email. 
And because that was too forward thinking. And so the good news is that these big guys came out and said, we are doing this. We would like all of the smaller and medium-sized foundations to do it too. We want to make an example. We do want to support administrative and operational costs. We do want to value people and we do want to make it easier to get the money out there. So most people I know are hoping that that continues post-COVID because it's finally a little chink in the iceberg. That's interesting. And I wanted to kind of bring up also this perspective of, you know, we're talking about large donors primarily here, but I'm also seeing these trends like these micro donors and these grassroots movements. And these seem to be fueled by technology platforms that enable very easily to be able to donate micro amounts of money. And you're seeing like these movements that get to be funded extraordinarily well by just going with very small amounts with lots of people. What's the balance we're seeing here? And is there anything we should be aware of? What we should be aware of is that we need to encourage it. There was an article yesterday I read about people on Twitch, the online gaming platform, where I think they've raised, I want to say, 8 million, 10 million or more. Remember? I've seen that. Actually, I've interviewed Iman, which is Pokimane, one of the biggest streamers on Twitch. And she was even doing like, this is the biggest thing that this generation wants to do is they've generated wealth. They have a huge following, but they're not really sure where to direct their efforts, whether it's funds, times, et cetera. Right. And so they're giving money, but they're also raising money for other people. So people are sending in 15 or $20. Kids are sending in money and, and raising money for different, really, really interesting causes that Twitch personality favors. And, and they say, we want to raise money. And they're literally raising millions of dollars through TikTok, through Switch, through a lot of those different places. And the best thing that we can do and the most important thing I think we can do is say, thank you and encourage them and not make it difficult and not say, why would you do that? That's not the right way to do it. And for that reason, kind of one of the upshots and one of the things I do tell people who are new to this world is that people who don't, haven't been doing this for years and years and years, if you're really good at talking to people and you really have passion for the organization and you're good at marketing and you're good at closing or whatever in sales, but you have passion, that is usually enough to create the ability for you to raise a lot of money. The old school fundraising tactics where you have to do the sit down at lunch and you have to do the ask and you have to do whatever and you have to be one of the people that I recognize as part of the club. Like I said, they're off-putting and they will work for the older people still. They will work for a very small subset of people, but every year they work for fewer people. And when I see the hundreds of thousands of kids and young people who are giving some amount of money because their video game star person who they love is doing it and is asking for it, that's a major change in our world for the better. That's awesome, which is actually where I wanted to kind of close this is what is the hope that you see? Because I know, like, especially in American culture, like giving is supposed to be really a fundamental part of American culture. As far as, you know, giving away 10% to charitable funds is almost as part of a lot of even religious values and country values. And I don't know if that trend is as big. It seems like there's been like a big adversity towards giving. I feel like there's been a lot of people that have wanted to keep the money for themselves, yet we're seeing these amazing instances of generosity happen. And it's almost like there was a loss of trust within these organizations. And so as we move forward, especially looking at a world with post-COVID, there's a lot of need, there's a lot of help that needs to come with it. Are you seeing that generosity still prevail within these times? And are you hopeful for the transformation these organizations are going through? Yes, I'm very, very hopeful. But it is true that there are people out there who, where it allows the experience and so you never hear from them again. So there's something called a donor advised fund where people can get the tax deduction and leave their money. And it's growing exponentially where people are getting the tax deduction in the US. 
They've just opened one in Israel. They have them in some different other different countries. And people are letting the money sit there because it's just too uncomfortable to jump into that. And it might be because you had a bad experience, but it also might be because people just aren't kind of warm and welcoming. They're just not nice when you try and figure out and you ask some questions and you're kind of clumsy because there really isn't a handbook on how to do it. It's difficult. Or if you give them a little bit of money and all of a sudden it's, oh, well, that's not enough. We'd like to get more money. And that actually happened to me at the beginning where I thought I was doing a matching grant and somebody said to me, oh, no, you didn't do that right. They wanted more money. And I thought, well, I thought I just did something good. So I do see new groups of people continuing to want to donate. And during COVID, people have come out of the woodwork and started donating for the first time in their lives. And it doesn't mean it has to be tons of money, but it's something. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think that this world needs to look at those people and, like I said, say thank you. And here's my hand. Let's tell you a little bit about it. It's not scary. Let's go help some other people fans of Mind Valley, you might be familiar with one of the authors called Joe Vitale. And he actually says a quote, which is, you can't outgive the universe. And if you know the law of attraction, you know, every time you give, it just brings an opportunity for the universe to give back to you tenfold, whatever it is. And so I'm glad that we've had this discussion, Lisa. Thank you so much for bringing us this insight. Kind of mind blown, to be honest, about how this resistance happens. And isn't it simple? Like to me, it's just like the thank you. You know, you've repeated the thank you so many times for these organizations. It's almost hard to do so. Just take away the barriers and just say thank you. But I think once we're seeing these organizations have more transparency, I think what they're doing, they're probably giving us a lot more involvement within whatever's happening. And, you know, I can just think of one institution called Charity Water, have so much transparency on all these efforts, and you can get so involved whenever you donate to this organization. And so I see this new generations of nonprofits that are doing things that are attracting a lot of different donors. And I think for us, bringing back that generosity in the way that we get to participate in the economy, there are in areas where corporations cannot solve those needs and philanthropy is needed. And if you are someone that's sitting on a level of wealth, and maybe you've had a similar experience as Lisa getting into the field, know that there is a handbook that exists, the philanthropy revolution that can actually give you the perspective of how you can see the world differently with these new generations of fundraisers that are happening, that are really serving the humanity in a different way and getting to access a pool of people that are really willing and wanting to donate and just want to see the system happen a little differently. If yourself, you've been wanting to start a nonprofit initiative, this is a really great place that you can start to see that there is an abundance of money that's available. There are causes that people want to support and there are specific ways that you can do it that can attract this generation of donors so that you can actually have the funds and it doesn't just all need to go into the impact. The marketing and the administration needs to happen. And if you're working with these donors that are really going to want to be involved, they're going to want to see why it's important and you can educate them, get them involved you'll see that there's a lot more willingness to receive the funds, to give the funds. And I think that we're going to be able to all help each other out in the process. Lisa, thank you so much for your time and coming here on the show. Thank you. For all the listeners, stay caring, stay giving. And as I said from Joe Vitale's quote, you can't outgive the universe. So if you can be inspired to do one major action from this interview, find something you care about and give a small donation, whatever it is possible. You'll see that it feels good and it does come back. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, 
You get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver, where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.